0: City on Fire. City on Fire. The novel is called City on Fire. The author is Garth Risk Hallberg.
1: There has been so much written about you and City on Fire since Knopf first bought the rights to publish it in 2013. Garth has almost become part of publishing lore. Here's the short version of what happened. Your agent, Chris Paris Lamb, sent out the manuscript to the major New York houses, and shortly afterward, a bidding war ensued with Knopf emerging the winner giving you what they call in publishing a, quote, major deal. That's the story that flooded the internet in late 2013. Not as many people know what was going on with you behind the scenes that year. Garth, I'm so glad to finally get you on Rock is to talk about the new Apple TV Plus series based on your novel, City on Fire.
0: Apple announced a series
2: order for Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage's upcoming crime drama, City on Fire. The first three episodes of City on Fire will be available on Friday, May 12th, with subsequent episodes releasing weekly. Well, City on Fire,
0: lots of buzz about it. One of those kinds of shows where it's critically acclaimed and expected to be a big hit.
2: The good thing is that like it's a thriller, so like that's what it is at
1: its core. City on Fire is another project that is uh, coming out May 12th. Round applause for City on Fire. This is uh, getting a lot of good reviews. Morning. In this episode, the city is on fire.
0: Rock is lit.
1: Welcome to season two of Rock is lit the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels, brought to you by Pantheon Podcast Network. Make sure you subscribe so you won't miss any of the episodes featuring some amazing rock novelists and music experts. I'm your host, Christy Alexander-Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page from Livingston Press. Find me on Facebook at Christy Alexander-Hallberg and Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at christyalexanderhallberg.com. If you enjoy the show, do me a solid and pop on over to Good Pods or Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and rating. As always, Wyatt, the Rocky's Limp mascot, and I thank you for tuning in. Hello, Lit listeners. Well, I suppose I could call this episode Hallberg on Hallberg. Garth Risk Hallberg is here, and no, it's no coincidence that we share the same last name. Full disclosure, Garth is the son of my late husband, Bill Hallberg, who was also a writer and teacher. So I'm extra excited about this show. And I have a feeling that wherever Bill is right now, he's pretty stoked, too. Especially because Garth is here to talk about the Apple TV Plus series, City on Fire which is based on his 2015 international best-selling novel of the same title. The first three episodes of this eight-episode music-driven mystery thriller are out Friday, May 12, 2023. You can catch one new episode weekly through June 16, 2023. If you haven't seen the trailer or read the novel yet, here's a very brief synopsis of the plot. A college student is shot in New York City's Central Park on July 4, 2003. The investigation connects a series of mysterious citywide fires, the downtown music scene, and a wealthy uptown real estate family fraying under the strain of the many secrets they keep. A little more about Garth. He teaches in the Sarah Lawrence MFA Writing Program and is also the author of the novella, A Field Guide to the North American Family. He is a 2008 New York Foundation for the Arts Fellow in Fiction. And he was named one of Grant's decennial Best of Young American Novelists in 2017. His stories and essays have been published in the New York Times Magazine, the New York Times Book Review, The Guardian, Glimmer Train, New York Magazine, Slate, and many, many other prominent outlets. Welcome to Rockets Lit, Garth. It's great to finally get you on the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to finally be on the podcast.
1: Yeah. Well, as you know, I do a sort of warm-up with the authors on the show. It's called Five Questions. I get a greater sense of what their personal tastes and music are beyond just what appears in the rock novels. I already have an idea of what you're into. For example, I know you like punk rock and Bruce Springsteen. And I have a vivid memory of you and I debating your dad, Bill, about who was a better guitarist, Eric Clapton, which was his choice, and Jimmy Page, which was our choice. And we won
2: good for us i I know i don't remember this but i'm gonna say good for us
1: anyway i'm hoping to discover something new about your musical proclivities today so let's do this
2: good i prepared a little surprise a little bomb to to detonate in this
1: okay yeah and here's the first one what music video made the biggest impression on you
2: I thought about this. This was tricky because, you know, I am in the target area of the MTV generation, but I'm going to have to go with Sinead O'Connor. Nothing compares to you.
1: I wasn't expecting that, but that's a It's not a bombshell, though, but it's a good choice.
2: Was not my bombshell.
1: All right. You're in a bar and you see a rock star sitting in a corner, nursing a drink and reading City on Fire. Who is it and what do you do? And I think I know who it's going to be.
2: It's Patti Smith.
1: Yeah, I knew
2: it. And I go over and I say, thank you, because she did two things. One, she did not raise any ruckus about me using a badass image of Patti Smith in the middle of the book. And number two, when you turn to the permissions page and, you know, there's probably seven or eight songs, maybe more whose lyrics are used in the book. And they're all like the Hal David, Warner Chappelle me, you know, predacious music group. Yeah, Patty Smith's is like, you know, the lyrics to Patty Smith's horses appear courtesy of Patty Smith.
1: All right. Oh,
2: that was cool.
1: Yes, very. Now you met her one time. You met her at a, what a concert?
2: No, I met her at a at a party. Actually, we had books out. It was a large party. It was a, the seventy fifth anniversary of the Knopf publishing house, and we both had books on the fall list. And so uh, her editor, Robin Desser, knew I was a fan and introduced us. And it was just like, she is just the coolest person. She is the person you could go up to in a bar. I mean, she just really has a presence that comes from, I think you have to know yourself really well to have that kind of presence. Yeah. What's cool is that the structure of the conversation was like, she kind of knew I needed something from her and was cool with that. And what I remember her saying is something to the effect of like, you'll be all right, kid. Oh, yeah.
1: All right. Fill in the blanks. When I hear a blank song, I think of blank.
2: The best I could come up with was when I hear London Calling, which is, of course, an album as well as a song. I was really thinking about the whole album, but I think of the person I would like to be.
1: OK, so the whole album. Which is a great album.
2: It is a great album, and it's kind of, it's into everything. You know, it's reggae, it's, it's, it's got a little, like, western swing in there. You know, it's just all over the map musically, and it's just, just brimming with this kind of generosity that actually cuts against some of the doctrinaire kind of energy of it as well. And it's just, I don't know, it's all, every, all the things together in one. I love that.
1: Okay, yeah, I like that too. What's on your playlist now?
2: All right, the first thing, I have two. One is a band called Muzz, M-U-Z-Z.
1: I haven't heard of them.
2: I did not know about, I had somehow missed it. And I heard it on the soundtrack. It was in like episode seven of the City on Fire TV series. And I thought, who is that? I must find that. And I could not find their version of the song on the internet. And then I was talking to the uh, soundtrack coordinator, emailing with him. And I mentioned it, and he was like, oh, we commissioned that for the show. That band is like an indie supergroup. It's the vocalist from Interpol, the drummer, Matt Barrick, from The Walkman, who I've been following since I was a teenager, when he was in Jonathan Fire Eater, and a reed man named Stuart Bogey, who I went to a gig with in Asheville.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah,
2: his, his jazz band was, was playing at a reading." And they're just a great, great band. So I ordered the album, which is on Matador. It's a pretty big, you know, I just somehow missed it. I've got little kids. And it is a great, great record. The second one is my bombshell.
1: Okay. Fire away.
2: Humble Pie.
1: Get out. Really?
2: The fifth Humble Pie album, Smokin'.
1: All right. Why that one?
2: Because I've been listening to a lot of jazz. Like, I'm, I'm in the late stages of this new novel and I just wanted, you know, especially in the winter, it was like the end of a long day of writing. I just needed stuff that didn't, I didn't have to think about words anymore. And Humble Pie, Steve Marriott, one of the great rock vocalists, let it be said, I believe Robert Plant himself has said, no Robert Plant without Steve Marriott. Mm. And I loved Small Faces. You know, that was a Marriott band. I defy you to name a Better lead singer who is also a better guitarist than Steve Marriott. Like he is incredible on both of those axes. But the album is like, it is just like they've done away with all the lyrical content. It is just rock music that is about rocking and how hard they rock. So it's, okay. it's like
1: hot and thing.
2: and it's like it, that's just all it is for like forty minutes. See, it's just like. Plug it in and rock. Like, you know, there's no, um, the songs aren't about anything. I just love it. It's like ACDC is somehow built on, you know, that <laughs> fifth Humble, Humble Pie record. Jack Black's career, I think.
1: Okay, well, I accept that bombshell. I'll check that out. I haven't heard that album.
2: Oh, man. You were, you'll either be like, it's a little, it's like a little Spinal Tap adjacent, or like you can imagine that that was the band that Spinal Tap yeah based on almost but like they know what they're doing it's not like they're they're just like why bother to write about you know a <laughs> heaven Well, we could just write about rock it's like that line from the simpsons where there's a halftime show that's a long overdue tribute to halftime itself
1: now i like humble pie i just haven't heard that album so thanks for the tip
2: smoking no
1: smoking what's your favorite rock novel
2: My favorite rock novel, this is tricky because I was thinking about like, what is a rock novel? So if the rock novel has to have, does not have to have a band in it, but just have like the energy of rock and roll, then I might go with The Savage Detectives by Bolaño, which is super rock and roll in its energy, even though it's more about teenagers writing poetry than it is about rock bands.
1: The Savage Detectives by Roberto Bellano. Got it.
2: But it, if a rock novel is like a novel that concerns, you know, the rock biz or rock bands, I think DeLillo's Great Jones Street is probably my favorite.
1: You are not the first person to say that. Jeff Jackson loves that book.
2: And it's not my favorite DeLillo even, but it is. It's a great rock novel. And Jennifer Egan's Visit from the Goon Squad, I'm sure, it has come up. And I would throw one on there that I don't know how many people have read, but there's a book that was out a few years ago called This Is Memorial Device by David Keenan, who's a Scottish writer, I think, it's about a, an imaginary Scottish po- post-punk band called Memorial Device. And it's, it's great.
1: That's one to add to the list. That sounds great.
2: So I answered all five of your questions with like a million different answers, but it's hard to narrow these things down.
1: That's fine. You you don't you would not believe how many people have a whole long list for the what's on your playlist questions. So yeah, what's on? You your did playlist. really well. Yeah. All right. This was productive. I definitely learned a thing or two from this. So let's take a short break, and we'll be back with Garth Risk Hallberg, author of the novel City on Fire. You can start streaming the TV series adaptation on Apple TV Plus right now.
0: Yep. Friends were still calling.
2: I hesitated, was surprised to find you making all the same mistakes again. This is Garth Risk Hallberg and you're listening to Rock Is Lit.
0: Hello Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds.
1: And we're back with Garth Risk Hallberg, author of the novel City on Fire, which has just been made into an eight-episode series. The first three episodes are now available exclusively on Apple TV+. So first of all, let's just get this straight. Yes, Risk is your middle name. It is your real name. You didn't make it up. I've seen so many interviews with you and read so many interviews with you and people asking that question, so I thought we'd just throw that out there.
2: In your uh, extensive, extensive perusal of my cor- corpus of interviews, <laughs> um, it might not have come up, but there is another Garth R. Hallberg.
1: That did come up.
2: So if you ever run across the book, all consumers are not created equal. That is not me. That is my my doppelganger, my double who's out there. So for disambiguation purposes, the middle name has proved useful.
1: Yes. But the name actually is your dad Bill's mom's side comes from her side of the family. She was a risk, so it's a family name. And I was just you know just saying. Okay, there has been so much written about you and City on Fire since Knauf first bought the rights to publish it in 2013. Garth has almost become part of publishing lore. Here's the short version of what happened. Your agent Chris Paris Lamb sent out the manuscript to the major New York houses, and shortly afterward a bidding war ensued with Knopf emerging the winner, giving you what they call in publishing a, quote, major deal. And that was really significant because Sitting on Fire is over 900 pages long. That's the story that flooded the internet in late 2013. Not as many people know what was going on with you behind the scenes that year. I mean, your second little boy was born in the spring. So you had two very young children at home and your dad, Bill, was dying of cancer. Talk about a schizophrenic year. How did you negotiate all of the highs and the lows from 2013 without losing your mind?
2: Well, I mean, the book had sort of given me. You, it's funny, you said what a, what a schizophrenic year. My experience of life has kind of been that every year is a schizophrenic year. And I don't, you know, that sounds glib or facetious, but I've actually found it to be Uh, really helpful to me in kind of living. I don't want to use the phrase like the art of living because, you know, I would be like a bumbling apprentice at that. But, I mean, I remember there was probably a time in my life where I expected like, oh, this is just a bad year. Next year will be only good things. And that's just not how it is to me. to me. Maybe some people's lives work that way. So the book had actually kind of... Started, it had been gestating for a while, and I'd been afraid to write it because I kind of knew the scale. And the year that I really started to write it in earnest was the year that my dad got diagnosed with cancer. I don't even remember what all else was going on that year, but I'm sure it was lots of good stuff and lots of bad stuff. And the book had just kind of become a way, like a place I could go to that was stable and where time moved in a different fashion and it kind of gave me a place to stand a little bit outside of my life i mean you know this as a as a novelist so i already had that and i had that by 2013 i had that for six or seven years so by the time i finished the book the writing of it which you know made this thing that i thought was kind of unpublishable because it was not, it just didn't look like what other people were doing, but it also looked very much like what I had set out to do. So I kind of reached this place of relative peace with it, where I was just really enjoying what the writing was and trying not to get too caught up in what comes after. And it turns out, you know, that posture, I don't know, it kind of appears to draw some energy toward it or something. But I just did my best not to really get caught up in the highs and, and the lows help with that, you know, it's like, yeah, I, I had something to ground me that seemed a little bit more consequential than, you know, whatever might be happening in the kind of public world. Nobody really lives in that world. You know, it's not, it's not a it's not a human scaled world. So, I was doing my best to kind of live in my human scale world that included my kids and my dad and my work.
1: Right. Well, that was never your dream, the big publishing deal. For you, it was the writing, it was doing the work and then hoping there's somebody out there reading it. I think Bill was really the one who had the big dream about the, the big publishing deal. But I will tell you, you know, I mean, it was such a gift to him what happened. And I remember the day that you called. To tell him that there was a deal in the works for City on Fire, and you said there were several houses that you were considering, and you would let us know the next day. It was Tuesday, November the fifth, twenty thirteen. That was such an incredible day. And the funny thing is that the very next day after the deal was sealed, it wasn't you who called David Gernert at the Gernert Agency. Beat you to it. He was so excited. I mean, that's the agency where your agent works, and he was so excited because he had he had a relationship with Bill that he called him and just blurted it out. So the news got out before you could even get to him. But it was that was an amazing day.
2: Well, he had edited my dad um, in the 80s at Doubleday. Uh, And it is pure, you know, happenstance that he happened to be in the building with my agent and kind of had a ringside seat. And he he just thought it would be a kick in the head, you know, (laughs) after not being in touch for years to kind of reach out. To my dad, but I think what I, I think what I actually called, I think I called to say, like, you know, just a heads up, like you, you will probably be hearing about this. And I felt kind of sheepish because I had not talked about it a lot. i have been kind of keeping it under wraps. and i didn't I didn't do that thinking like, oh, I'm going to spring a surprise on anyone. It was like, oh, well, this will be this kind of small personal thing that's happening. Some, what is it they say online? Like some personal news or whatever. (laughs) But, and it just kind of- Not hardly. It kind of, you know, was, ended up being, I guess, more public than that. And I just didn't want uh, either him or my mom to be blindsided. So it was like, I was frantically trying to, you know, (laughs) mops and things up behind the scenes but yeah he i knew it would i knew he'd get a kick out of it i'm glad someone got a kick out of
1: (laughs) it oh come on we were we were all thrilled about it and this is a really poignant memory i mean you were you were amazing about sending the manuscript in 2013 because we knew bill wasn't going to be here to read the book when it came out and i remember you you emailed like 150 pages and then I think you mailed some and then emailed some. So we're printing out stuff and getting stuff in the mail and reading it. And I kept a notebook. I still have it. And I still have those that entire manuscript in the closet. And I was taking notes because I was getting it piecemeal. And I wanted to remember the characters and the story. And Bill was reading it. And, you know, what a magical time that was. And so, you know, thank you for doing that. You gave him that gift as well. That was amazing.
2: Well, it was really competing with... With the insane person I've become in the editing process where I was like, I'm not ready to let these pages go. I want them to be so much better. But I was like, I've got to, you know, I really have a reader who really needs these on some kind of timetable. So I guess it kept me honest in a way.
1: Okay, so flash forward. The book comes out 2015 and my God, a New York Times notable book and named one of the best books of the year by The Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, NPR, Vogue. San Francisco Chronicle and the Wall Street Journal. Stephen King tweeted about the book, calling it massively entertaining and as close to a great American novel as this century has produced. And now the ride continues with this TV series. (laughs) Before we talk about the TV series, let's back up a little bit and, and get more information about your background. You were born in 78 in Denham Springs, Louisiana, and lived with your mom, Vicki, and your dad in Baton Rouge, where Bill taught English at LSU. So you were three when you guys moved to Greenville, North Carolina. Is that correct?
2: That is what I'm told. <laughs> I, have, I have like some very dim memories, but that sounds that sounds right to me.
1: Okay. So three years old, because Bill gets a tenure track job at East Carolina University. Right. You have said that from an early age, you felt a bit like a fish out of water in Greenville. And I can relate on many levels. Tell me about your experience growing up in Greenville in the 80s and 90s. I mean, When were you aware that you wanted to be elsewhere?
2: Well, um, that is an interesting question. I, and one that I'm... So fish out of water, that's kind of a universal experience, I think, in a way. You know, my oldest son is now 13, and we've been having, you know, conversations about how that feeling can be a rite of passage. The fact that neither of my parents was from town, but, you know, at that time, Greenville was something of a, it was a little sleepier than it is now. And I think in the South in particular, and in our part of the South, there, there's less kind of migration, I think. And so there's a kind of layering that goes on of families, you know, being there for generations. And we just weren't that. Yeah. You know, my dad was a professor. Our neighbors, you know, I don't think any of our neighbors were employed at the university so we just, you know, it was very kind of a bookish household. And I'm not, it's not like, you know, neighbors weren't reading books. They were just reading different books. And that may have conduced to just feeling a little bit like kind of moving between two worlds like what was in the house and what was outside of the house. I'll, n- I'll never forget, I think it was 1984. My, my parents were invited to a, a Halloween party. And you know, it was a it was a fairly Republican area. My dad decides that he's going to go as Ronald Reagan. But not just Ronald So my mom is going to go as Colonel Sanders, which is interesting also. But my dad's going to go as Ronald Reagan. But he's going to go as Ronald Reagan. And he's going to have some fake blood because Ronald Reagan had been shot in, like, 82. And it's like... Uh, Everywhere, I ran in the house like uh dad too soon maybe like you know like, he survived the assassin to my dad's credit he did survive the assassination attempt but maybe not the most tasteful thing so it was that kind of it was that kind of household it was a little bit of a like gene hackman in the royal tenenbaums moment <laughs> i think my mom ended up kind of checking him at the door and insisting that he not apply the fake blood or maybe he just had it to just mess with their head so there was that element. And then I remember, you know, the things I was into were, I don't know, were, were not typical for my age. So I just was, I was really into reading, like, like alarmingly into reading. Um, I was reading probably the wrong stuff.
1: What do you mean by that?
2: Well, you know, I liked, I already, you know, was kind of like nibbling around, you know, Dickens and stuff when I was, fifth, sixth grade, but also a lot of Stephen King, you know, um, which to be honest is also maybe not, you know, it was pretty searingly formative at sixth grade. And then I got into poetry, which was really like, you know, I should should say also, I think there's been a lot of movement. I'd like to believe there's been a lot of movement on like kind of gender norms. Oh yeah. But like reading poetry obsessively as a, you know, 12 year old was seen to be not the done thing. And then my parents split up and I kind of got deeper into reading, deeper into poetry, deeper into music, really deep into music. And I remember already I was kind of like obsessed with cities. Like I was, our nearest city was DC. I loved, the few times we would go to DC, I would be like, Oh man, like there's life there, you know, just a sense of different kinds of people. Like, on the street kind of mixing together in a way that you didn't get to my eye in Greenville, except for in the public elementary schools. Right. And then also kind of just being fascinated by New York in particular, because it was like the city where the books were made. And it was also the city where the books were set and like, and so many films and, and just having that imprinted on my mind. And then when I was in seventh grade, this, this, guy sean from wilmington came to town with his dog and a kind of hatchback full of cds and lps and tapes and he opened this tiny little hole in the wall record store called cd alley
1: yes cd alley
2: cd alley and that place was just that was like my happy place and it it caught this kind of wave of the music business like the early 90s through like about 2000 was this explosive growth and the store got bigger and bigger and you know all these like used vinyl and you cds are pouring into this university town and you know the clerks were these eccentric you know this kind of eccentric crew of people who could have been in a rock novel you know in high fidelity or something and i would just go in there and be like ah like this is where i belong mm-hmm. but this is only 1500 square feet. Like, where is there more of this? That is where I want to get.
1: Speaking of D.C. and New York, you have said, as a kid, I had three escapes, music, books, and cities. And all three of these merge in the novel and in your life, as you were just talking about. So you dove into the underground D.C. punk scene as a teenager. Because I understand that you were sending letters, tapes, zines through the mail to kids that you met on the scene and started driving up to D.C. In an old clunker that Bill gave you? So tell me, that, tell me about those years and those D.C. trips and how they led you to New York City.
2: Well, I had gone, I had kind of, the summer that I was, I guess I was 16, and I had, best to say it was just like a complicated time, and I was kind of digging in my heels about a lot of stuff, and you're not, you're not thinking very long range at that age anyway, and I had kind of got it in my head that I was just like not gonna, I was gonna kind of drop out of whatever there was to drop out of, like, I didn't know what I did want to do, but I knew what I didn't want to do. And one of those things was kind of gussying up my resume for applying to colleges. And my mom (laughs) had been like, well, you need to, you know, you got to do something. you got to do something this summer. I was working in a radiologist's office for like Hmm. $6 an hour, which I was probably then, you know, turning around to blow exclusively on music and contraband and... (laughs) And my mom's like, you got to do something you can put, you know, on a college application this summer. And I was like, what, you know, can't put working in a radiologist's office. And anyway, I'm not going to go to college, mom, you know. And mm-hmm. she, I think, in a fit of desperation, probably the same kind of fit of desperation that led my dad to give me the car, was like, well, what about this poetry thing? It's at Duke, there's a one-week poetry workshop. It is one week. We can afford it, you know, I think it was like $600 to send me away for a week of essentially camp. And which $600 is like a lot for our family, but she was like, we can afford this and you you just have to give me one week and it's poetry. You know, and, and you do wanna do that. That's something you do wanna do. So I went up there and the first, I'm sitting in this room with my bad attitude and I'm reading John Irving's The Cider House Rules because my girlfriend was into it. And I had it in my lap. And I was like, I can't really read, this is distracting. There's all these new people. We're kind of waiting for the, the man to come in and like tell us what to do. So I turn, it, I turn it upside down in my lap so to ostentatiously pretend to read and to see if anybody notices. And I'm like, if anybody notices, and that's a person who's really awake, <laughs> I mean, I was just, I was such a shithead. I'm so, Okay,
1: test a- number one. Yeah.
2: So this kid looks across the room at me and he goes, and he actually what he did is he made the gesture, this, the cigarette gesture, like you want to go have a smoke. And I was like, mm-hmm. boom, yes. And so these other kids start to watch us and this, this little crew forms in that moment. And we follow this guy outside. This is a transformative moment in my life. These are people I'm some of these people I still am close with. And we just go outside, and that's like that's the crew right there. And I just thought, like, wow, that was easy. All mm. I had to do is get out of Greenville. And and so those kids were from uh New York, from DC, from Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Monterey California no way
1: and they all came to the Duke program
2: yeah they were and they were all writers you know serious writers and they and all you know as it turned out great musical taste like into music and just I mean this is also a universal experience you go away somewhere and you get to reinvent yourself you're not stuck with yourself you've been in your little you know wherever you come from where everybody thinks they know who you are so I ended up kind of Corresponding with those people and through poetry, you know, it was, it was the '90s. We were writing letters, we're trading tapes, and then I started to go up to DC, and I would get my summer jobs in DC and crash with my DC friends. Uh, and so, basically, like by senior year, you know, there weren't many classes left for me to take at the high school. I was taking some classes at the college, but I think I had Fridays off, and I was just, you know, I'd I'd be out on the weekend. In the summer and the holidays, I'd be in DC and and going to shows.
1: Well, how did that lead to going to New York?
2: So, every everybody in DC was trying to get to New York. Was, okay. Yeah, you know, it's like I'm trying to get to DC. Everybody in DC is trying to get to New York. There was also a girl. That of I course, would,
1: there's a girl involved. Yeah.
2: That I was after. She was in. She was in New York, and so we would use DC as a jumping off point for for making these raids on.
1: Gotcha. Facebook.
2: But the music. I should say the music scene in DC. In the late 90s at that time was really a kind of a magic place. M- much more so. I mean, I, w- I was not in the New York music scene in the 90s. So I, it's not fair of me to say. And I'm sure there are people who are deeply involved in that, particularly the rock scene, I mean, because there was a great dance music scene in New York. And there was a great mm-hmm. rock scene. But as far as like, you know, guitars and drums and shows, I'm not really qualified to say. And maybe I'm wrong, but it seemed to me you know, maybe it's the romance of being inside it, but that DC had a claim to being, you know, one of the really, really great music scenes in the 90s. And what's more, it had an ethos. You know, it had a very unique sensibility because of, really, the band Fugazi and really because of Ian MacKay. Who's the lead singer Fugazi and Minor Threat for that? And also because of the Riot Girl thing. But that was, you know, Riot Girl was like a, a logical extension of what Ian Mackay was doing. So that was that worked really well together. But that, if you were in that world at that time, it really ruined people's lives in a good way. I mean, it never quite, you know, there's always a little part of me that's like, am I being true to that? Yeah. The ether.
1: Is it true on one of your trips to New York when you were a kid that Allen Ginsberg offered a friend of yours a fig Newton outside a deli in the East Village?
2: I was not on that trip. That was the legendary. That was like I had just missed that trip. I had I had met these. I had gone not met. I had gone my first run up to DC for a weekend. Came like a week after that. So I was hearing the stories. You asked how I got to New York. I was hearing the stories of like. There was a, a beat conference or something in, in New York in February. I want to say it was February of 96. And, you know, all of these friends of mine had gone up and stayed at the Washington Square Hotel and uh, rubbed elbows with Gregory Corso. And, yeah, it was Alan Ginsberg wow. was known to approach young men on the street and offer them big Newtons and any man of other things. but.
1: Yeah, that part wasn't shocking. I was just kind of interested in in how you were involved in that. But okay, that's just a part of the lore that your friends were were telling you about. Yeah, about New York City. Okay. Yeah. Well, there there is a story about New York City that yeah, I definitely know you're involved in. And we're getting to City on Fire here. You took a bus trip to New York City, and you're getting close to the city, and you've got your iPod going. And the Billy Joel song, Miami 2017, comes on. Tell me what happened, what went through your mind?
2: That was years later, that was in 2003. That was actually one week after the climax of the TV show. The novel involves the blackout of 1977.
0: It was the people who bore the brunt of the blackout, struggling through a night and most
1: of the day without lights, elevators, subways, or air conditioners. Steve Young reports on how they
0: handled it. New York in July of 1977 faced a blackout that lasted more than a day. CBS News cameras captured that summer's looting,
1: arson, and chaos. That era inspired a first-time novelist, City on Fire's
2: this season's most talked-about new book. The TV show has transposed, and which is, I mean, to me, that's kind of an interesting story, but they've transposed the novel to the post September 11th era, Mm -hmm. which is the era that I was actually kind of writing about when I read the book. And it's the time that I was actually writing the book. So in 2003, I want to say it was like probably set, maybe this is why it like came to me so strongly. It can't have been more than like 10 days after the blackout of 03. But I was riding the bus. In '03. I would have been 24. And I was on the bus. I had been coming up since September 11th, you know, for weeks, for long weekends, holidays. I had probably been up like a dozen times since September 11th. Because I had close friends who were in the city. But some of them, the same people who in high school had been trying to get there, had made it there. And I had stalled out in DC because my then girlfriend, now wife, could not get, she she actually got into Columbia for grad school. And you know I would be embellishing and say they sent her a bill before they sent her the acceptance letter, but how much it would cost became quickly apparent and she got funding in Maryland. So we were kind of like, well, we'll go to DC and camp out for a few years and then come to New York. But then September 11th happened and it's like, you want to see your friends who you thought that day you might have lost and I would be going up there frequently, but I would be going at night in the dark because I was working during the day for whatever reason. in oh three, I was on the bus and it was daytime. So I could see the skyline, like the way it had appeared when I was 17. And I'd be making like daytime trips up. And instead of having a walkman by that point, I had an iPod. And the iPod, instead of having a tape in it, had like 30,000, I'm exaggerating, it's probably that time, 10,000 songs. And some of them, like things, I don't even know how they got on there. And one of them was this Billy Joel song about the blackout of 77. And I was just looking at the skyline, listening to the song, which I'd never heard before or hadn't paid attention to before. And the lyrics about the blackout and it's a very fantastical version of The Blackout of 77. And I'm now realizing it was because I was hearing it 10 days after A Giant Blackout. Was like, I was like, oh, that's, I thought, I, this is like, almost like, for, I don't know if people think in language, but I remember thinking, that's a, that's a novel. And then I thought, that's the novel. That's the novel I'm supposed to write. And then I thought, that's a big problem, <laughs> I'm really scared of it, but that was, that was the story. i seen the lights go out on
1: Broadway, I saw the Empire
0: State laid low, and life
2: went on beyond the palisades,
0: they all Long they held
1: out in the OK, so you go into the city and start making notes and then realize, like you just said, this is a big novel and I can't do this right now. And you just put it on the shelf for what, four years?
2: Yeah, I, did. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I wrote a scene that ended up in the novel. And I thought, I just like didn't know, I just didn't know the approach somehow. And it was like a huge leap from the scale of things I had been doing. And I didn't even understand what I was writing in terms of like, who are these people? Like I could see them, but I was like, what's going on? I just thought, I don't, I, I don't want to mess this up. I don't want to start baking the cake not knowing how to bake the cake. It felt like such a gift. But I was also kind of being a huge coward. And I thought I would put it in a drawer and I thought I would come back to it in 10 years. Four years later is when my dad got sick. And I just thought, you know, in that moment, I was like, what's the thing that I would write if I never, you know, if I could only ever write one thing, what would be the thing I would work on? That's what I need to be doing right now.
1: Oh my gosh. So you started really seriously working on it in 2007, which was the first diagnosis.
2: I think that diagnosis came and I was just like, I need,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I need, I need a place to go. Yeah. So it was kind of, you know, it was kind of like replaying what it was like to be a teenager. It's like, I need a place to go. And that place had been New York. And now I was living in New York, you know, like I was there. I'd made it there. And I was like, "But I, st- I still need a place to go. You know it'll have to be a different New York
1: When did you move to New York? Was that two thousand four?
2: I was two thousand and four. When I came up in o three, I was actually like to scope out like places,
1: yeah. Hey, Lit listeners, if you're enjoying the episode so far, stop what you're doing and leave a rating and comment on Good Pods or Apple Podcasts. I'll leave links in the show notes. Seriously, Rock is Lit is a new show and a sea of podcasts. Help me build momentum about this first and only podcast devoted to rock novels. The way to build that momentum and grow an audience, besides listening to the episodes and telling your friends to check us out, is to get Rock is Lit on some podcast lists with your ratings and comments. It'll only take a minute, it won't cost you a cent, and you get some good karma. Link's in the show notes. Thanks so much for your support. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. Okay, our discussion is now firmly rooted in the time period the TV series based on Sitting on Fire is set, so let's shift to the series. When you first told me, months ago, that the time had been changed from 1977 to 2003, I remember thinking, why? But then I realized the symmetry of those two periods, that there had been a major blackout during both of those times, for one thing. In 77, the blackout caused major panic and looting and violence and fires citywide. And I I don't think there was that same kind of violent acting out during the 2003 blackout. But there was certainly panic, especially given what had happened in New York City on 9-11, less than two years prior. I'm sure the first thought people had was that the blackout was another terrorist attack. So the the sense of uncertainty about what was happening in that moment and about the future of New York City and the country was very similar. And now, after having heard more of your backstory about writing the novel and when you wrote it, I have an even better sense of the significance of the change. I'm really interested to see how the shift in time plays out in the TV series.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think... I think there's probably, to be completely honest, I think there's probably, you know, one way of looking at that, that is just a crass commercial consideration. I'm exaggerating a little bit for effect, but you have to think, you know, when you're making, when you're writing a novel, you can do anything you want. Your sum costs are like your pencil and your paper. Right. If you're going to get together the budget and, and moreover, all, all the people's time. For a TV show, you might think sort of carefully about how is this going to land? Like, how is this going to play out once, we're, once we release it in a way that I try never to do when I'm writing? And when the book came to me in 2003, the parallel, like, I was like, oh, I've been living through this thing for 18 months now, this kind of altered state, this kind of post September 11th. Stranded between two worlds, one dying, one not ready to be born, I think is the Matthew Arnold line. And that was how that time period felt. While from above, the Bush administration was frantically trying to clamp down on that feeling and be like, nothing, you know, like, nope, it's the same old world. And in that world, we go to war, you know, but but on the street, when I would go up to New York, it would, you know, and in the bars and in the clubs and In my friend's apartments, it was like, no, there's something, there's something happening here that's making everybody ask questions about how should I be living right now because there's tomorrow is not guaranteed, and it had seemed to me like, oh, I can tell this story, I can get the distance I need to tell that story by looking at '70s New York when everything was up in the air and the city was kind of. In ruins a little bit. And I can just go there and write about that and not think consciously about anything I'm trying to say about now. And somehow, you know, the mirror effect will happen. And I thought, like, part of why I felt I had to write the book is like, nobody else is going to see that. That parallel is like, if, it doesn't, if I don't write it, nobody else <laughs> is going to write that book. So as a reader, like, I've got to write it. By the time the book was published, Rachel Kushner had just written a great book, obviously, arguably a rock and roll novel, The Flamethrowers, she has the Blackout makes a little, 77 makes a little cameo in her novel. And it was like that people had started to look at that time period, the bad old days, you know, the um, conceptual art era of the 70s. You know, you could tell people were getting interested in that. By the time the book was published, uh, maybe the year after, no, it was that year, I think, one word, vinyl, the Scorsese Mick Jagger series. And that thing, you know, love Scorsese, all the respect to Mick Jagger. That thing was a bomb. You know, I didn't, I didn't see it, but it was like a real turkey. I think you're making a TV show, you might be like, well, you know, maybe we don't want to, you know, David Simon did the deuce, Baz Luhrmann did a show. That period had kind of been mined. And so, Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage, the producers, came to me with this kind of touching, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of touching in a way. We were, we were in talks and it was like, there's this thing we want to ask. You know, you're going to hate this. Like,
1: I know. I read that they were really nervous about asking you about changing the time. I
2: mean, I don't know if they were actually, but it makes a good story. And they did seem a little nervous. <laughs> and I was just like, the minute they said it, I was like, yes i was like i love this like i was like you've it made me feel seen in some weird way that they would have read this long book about the 70s and seen which is what people you know that's what a lot of the kind of i don't know for lack of a better word campaign i guess that they do around a book it was like that was kind of like the hook but like underneath the hook for me the person who wrote it like a lot of stuff i care about is like the characters the thought you know the idea of a city on the brink of something. And for them to kind of see, be able to see that, I thought you guys are writers. I didn't know them as writers. I just knew from that way of reading that they must be writers. And and moreover, I just thought, oh, that's great. That's gonna free you up to make something that doesn't, you know, that can be good TV and not worry about, you know, everything being perfect match with the book like it would open up a space of free play
1: so they wrote all eight episodes how involved were you in this process
2: not very i mean i i kind of said from the jump and i had said when it was a film project i was just kind of like i don't want to be that involved which goes back to my dad he had gotten very you know he had published a novel and that in 87, I think, or 88, that had been optioned for film. And he really, really wanted to see it on film. And I always thought, and I was young. I mean, I was like nine, but I was like, Dad, I think you've got this backwards. Like, they, you know, the film option, if you can live, you know, modestly, like, is a salary for a writer. It's kind of ideal for someone not to make something. So... As long as the option's alive, you know. But he he really saw it the other way. He'd spent some time writing a script. And I just thought, that's not something I'd be good at. I don't feel any calling. Like, why would I want to do that? I've got these writers in the room who know how to write TV and who are thinking like writers. And I just have to decide, do I trust them? And if I trust them and I say, okay, this is now yours like a leap of faith. I got to step back. I can't then try to control it. I did have kind of a license to kibitz.
1: (laughs) And did you? I did
2: from time to time. There's one thing in episode one that I think came from a note that I gave that is actually a lovely thing. There is something in mid-season that I suggested that's a larger thing. That I'm pretty pleased with myself about. <laughs> and because there was a plot change. And I said, okay, I think this is a good plot change, which I won't give away. But I was like, if you change the plot in this way, I think you should consider making another change somewhere else to offset it. And I think I had one more kind of kibbutz thing that was maybe useful. Is when they cast Jemima Kirk as as Regan. And I thought like, oh, that's a brilliant piece of casting. And it's also going to be, it's going to be like, it's going to open up this other space for this character and her brother than than is in the book.
1: Had you seen her work before? Because I wasn't familiar with her. I just know that she's the daughter of the drummer from Bad Company, Simon Kerr. There you go. That was all I knew. Of course. And that was all I needed to know. That's right.
2: She, um, I, I knew her work from Girls. I'd like to work from girls and then uh sh- I used to see her around the playground.
1: Really? Yeah. Nice. All right.
2: I knew who she was also. And um that I don't like I mean we may have glancingly talked once, but I mean it's, if if so it was not memorable. Not memorable not cuz she's not memorable, but not memorable cuz I'm not memorable. But <laughs> um yeah, I just I knew enough to be like she's going to bring this ferocity that is there in the character I wrote, but that's that's sublimated or kind of repressed because you know, in, in 1977, your formative, your college years, you know, if you're thir- in your mid 30s, we're like, you know, the early 60, 59 to 63, the life of a woman, you know, working woman, and mother, and and how much of that ferocity you can let out yeah. is just different. And she, I just, I think she just, I think it's such a great performance. But I had just sent in a note. I was like, this opens up this dimension between her and her rebellious brother. Like, she's equally got that rebellion in her, you know? And it's like, it's a different dynamic, but it's the same dynamic. It's great.
1: Let's talk about some of these other lead characters. Chase Sue Wonders is Sam, and Wyatt Olaf plays Charlie. This was interesting to me. Wyatt was actually born in two thousand three. I read that so... in
2: the paper last week, and I was like, "That's wrong. That <laughs> can't be."
1: <laughs> I know. So, as I understand it, he was the youngest member of the main cast, but born in two thousand three. Interesting. Let's talk about the music in the movie. The music is so important in the book and we're talking 1977 punk and you can just picture the downtown scene in New York at that time. We're in 2003 in the series. Tell me a little bit about what to expect with the music in the series. So that was
2: that was actually the other part of the the pitch to me for the time shift that that actually made this weird kind of sense. Josh Schwartz in 2003 was in his early 20s. We we must be roughly, we must be almost exactly the same age. And he had just written the first season of The O.C. So he was kind of like a wunderkind. And he, his music was, you know, um, which she's still very passionate about, is, you know, it was like indie rock, New York, that era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Strokes, Walkman, Interpol. And if you remember, uh, the Peach Pit of the OC was the bait shop. <laughs> they would book bands. You know, these bands would come and play, you know, gigs on the OC. I think because Josh was like, I want to get this band to come and play.
1: Wow. Yeah.
2: And I had, uh, you know, then acquaintance, now, you know, friend, Hamilton was in the band, The Walkman. I've known Ham since 96, since I fell in with these DC people. Mm. And Ham's cousin, Walter, who was also in The Walkman, and who lived across the street, was in a band called Jonathan Fireeater. And that band, if you read Lizzie Goodman's book, Meet Me in the Bathroom, that was like, that's the band she starts with. So that was the band that was like, it was this huge buzz band that kind of exploded because of the late Stu Lepton, who was the singer, you know, he had some struggles. Yeah. And he was, and that band, their sound, their instruments, Stu himself, the fact that they reformed partially as the Walkman was kind of the inspiration for this band, Ex Post Facto, in the book.
1: Okay.
2: So that made a weird kind of sense.
1: That's a interesting connection.
2: And the fact that, you know, all of a sudden, 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003, you know, rock music was again kind of at the center of the musical world in New York and all the things that went with that, you know, like sex, drugs and rock and roll. It's like part of the kind of collective, you know, release of energy after September 11th, I think. Sure. Made it like a really intuitive transposition the two challenges i think in the transposition and i think they're harder than moving it from 77 to 2003 just the musically is like the the music scene as i understand it of the mid 70s had really had a kind of ethos Mm -hmm. like a kind of was almost like a philosophy that went along with punk and i would say from where i sit like indie rock of that, of the early aughts, like didn't quite have this philosophy. So you have to do something with that and show you have to sort of build it up. And what they did is they, you know, that really worked, I think, is used Sam's relationship with the music. Okay. The music feel really important as a, as a pathway of possibility for life. The other complication is that you then have to make music like i can write a novel i can just write song names <laughs> and like you can imagine what the music is but for the show they had to actually create the band ex post facto and record an album's worth of music
1: okay let's talk about that the music is composed by jason hill and i like this about the trailer when i first saw the trailer i thought i, I know this song in the background." And uh, it's it's Queens of the Stone Age. It's like the piano cover of Queens of the Stone Age hit. No one knows. So we've got that. Jason Hill's composing the music.
2: The soundtrack supervisor. And I should say he, the I believe the trailer was kind of out, you know, was done by uh, someone who specializes in trailers.
1: OK, so they outsourced that.
2: Yeah. So the trailer music, you know, the, it's an awesome trailer. Mm-hmm. The vibe of the trailer is kind of it, it'll get you in the door. But it's, it's very it, musically, sonically, and in other ways, it's, it's very, um, it's only one kind of tiny corner of what the show's got going on. So the music for the, the show, the Expo's Factor music is much more guitar-driven. Our music soundtrack supervisor is a guy named Jonathan Leahy, who's great fun to email with. <laughs> I gather what they did um, Josh had talked about this early on, was they would kind of convened a writer's room of kind of like, kind of an indie, you know, music, who's who, of, you know, the New York scene right now. Jason Hill, you know, uh, was was in the room, I think, another uh, producer, and it kind of written, you know, it gotten different members of this group to write songs as ex post facto. And then of them, and then the actors, Nico Tortorella, who plays, who's William incredible William, sings them. And then
1: Max Milner sings them too, doesn't he? Is Nicky? Max cares? Milner,
2: who replaces William in the band, takes over the band, sort of hijacks it, and turns it into a different band, but I can't write songs. His character uh, then also sings the songs in live shows so you get two different vocal interpretations and and the songs are good
1: so you've heard the whole soundtrack and you've seen the whole series what's the verdict
2: well i i think it's more typical for people maybe to you know have complicated feelings but i i think it's i i really like it that's all i can Say, I mean, it, it, the, the move in time gives me enough space from it that I can just kind of encounter it as its own thing, which I think is helpful. But I think it's very true to the spirit and the tone of the book, which may be not such a good thing for some people, but for, for me, that's what really matters to me about it. So it's got this, to me, it's got this wonderful kind of human quality to it. And you really get to know and care about. These characters, and I think it stands out somehow in that way.
1: Apple plans to release the songs online and on limited edition vinyl.
2: I'm told that it is happening. Um, The I know that the digital release I think is just under embargo. I don't know. Like like in other words, it will go to the streaming services. I think I suspect it will probably be simultaneous with the premiere, so it might be on by the time this episode airs.
1: the idea for this next bit from Peter McDade's rock novel, The Weight of Sound. It's a game called Only Pick One. You can only pick one in each category I'm going to throw out. First category, music formats, CD, vinyl, or cassette? Vinyl. I figured you'd say that. I was going to throw in streaming, but then I thought, no, he'll, Mm -hmm. he'll he'll never pick that. Category two, Desert Island 1970s punk artist. Patti Smith, television, suicide, or Lou Reed?
2: Oh, man. So I only get Lou Reed stuff from the 70s, not from the 60s.
1: Only the 1970s. We're honoring the novel with that category.
2: I got to go with Patty.
1: I figured. This one, I abs- I don't know what you're going to say. Desert Island early 2000s artist. Yeah, yeah, yes. The White Stripes, The Strokes.
2: I think yeah, yeah, yes.
1: Okay. Do you know that you can find quotes? There are whole websites that have quotes just from city on fire and then quotes just from you from interviews it's it's kind of scary actually
2: I think that sounds like a chat gpt generated uh, yeah
1: yeah all right favorite quotes from city on fire the novel because i i haven't seen the series yet first one sometimes you weren't yet the person you needed to be to do the work you needed to do number 2 the reason we can say anything we want in america is that we know it makes no difference and the last one, but I guess what I would want to leave each of you with finally tender, some evidence of against a life's worth of signs to the contrary comes down simply to this. You are infinite. I see you. You are not alone.
2: Well, I can eliminate number two because that is basically rip off something Philip Roth said. I do. Even though I wrote it, I do, I, I do really like number one, but I guess I to go with number three on that.
1: Why? Why are you going with number three instead of number one? I'm curious.
2: Oh, you know, I don't know. Something there's a kind of both of those lines, one and three are things that just kind of popped out of the end of my pen. The first one, I think, is very truthful. Like, I you know, kind of came out of the end of my pen and I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's pretty. I haven't thought about that before, but that feels really true. But the other one it's the end of the novel and there's something that happens i in my experience at the end of a novel particularly a long novel where you're getting whatever comes out there is going to be the last line of the novel and you don't know what it's going to be and you only get one crack at it and it's terrifying and it's gotta you gotta hit it running and when that came out it just felt like the thing I've been writing toward.
1: Mm -hmm. It's the perfect last line, especially for that book. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, last category. Think really hard about this. This is very important. Best rock guitarist, Jimmy Page, (laughs) Jimmy Page, or Jimmy Page.
2: (laughs) I gotta go with Hendrix on this one.
0: Ah, you screwed up now.
1: <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, my God. That is, I'm not surprised that you just threw that out there. <laughs> oh, gosh. All right. Well, so I can't wait to binge watch the show. It, it sounds fantastic. I'm so happy for you. I know what a long journey it's been. And I know you don't like to talk about what you're working on. So I won't ask you to tell me. But is there anything that you want listeners to know about what you're doing now?
2: Um, I would just say not long now.
1: Okay. All right. Well, this has been amazing. I know you're not on social media, like at all. So where can folks go to find out more about you and your work and, and purchase a copy of City on Fire?
2: They can go to their local independent bookseller.
1: Amen.
2: And actually get a new cover for the the paperback, which is kind of a mashup of the typefaces from the show and then the original hardcover jacket, which I love. Uh, so you can look for that. I think there is a Garth Risk Hallberg author.com or something like that. Uh, it's a Malaysian gambling syndicate poached rights <laughs> to my name because I neglected to secure the domain name.
1: Oh my God. I came up for
2: auction again. So until those are. Until I get this back. I think it's, it's either Garth Ritz-Kalberg author or Garth kalberg books or something like that.
1: Good to know. Stay away from that. Okay. All right, li- listeners, you've heard the episode. Now check out the TV series based on Garth's novel, City on Fire, streaming now on Apple TV+. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Say, say, for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit! To hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word. And check out the Rock is Lit vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit.
0: Rock is lit!